Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Tales of the Talmud. It's so great to be joining you all. I'm Rabbi Nick Renner, um, and we're joined this evening by uh, rabbinic intern Daniel Scher as well, so we're glad to have him um, joining this group in this conversation as well. We're going to begin by talking about what is the Talmud. I like to have a short refresher on just what this is we'll be reading from uh, tonight. Does anybody want to chime in, things that they remember about what the Talmud is? The longest sacred book of that time. The, ever, but certainly that time. It's the longest of any kind of, of book of, of, that, of time. that time. It's the longest written work of the ancient world by about four times. The next closest is some kind of legal code. And it's the conversations of the rabbis. And it's over, the, mm-hmm. but, but not necessarily there at the same time. That's yeah. right. It's the conversations of the rabbis. Um, I also I appreciate the reminder. I had a suggestion that we have uh, name tags last time so folks can know who they're learning Talmud with. So I want to pass those around too. Thank you, Daniel. Um, the Talmud is the longest written work of the ancient world. It's, it, yeah. It's, it's commentary. So it's mm-hmm. commentary on a portion of Torah. The Torah is in the middle, and then all the commentaries are on the outside. And a special part for me about the Talmud is that it preserves the minority opinions. It That's right. It doesn't just present dogma. It presents the argument, and it may tell you who won the argument, but you get to hear who lost it. This is a big reason why it is so long. It is this set of rabbinic conversations and arguments. Um, but the reason it's so long is it, pres- it preserves the minority and dissenting opinions. So we get all of the different ideas, regardless of what the actual Jewish law happens to be. Um, when was the Talmud written? Which one? Okay. <laughs> Bert correctly points out that there are two different Talmuds. There's the Talmud Bavli and the Talmud Yerushalmi. The Bavli, or Babylonian Talmud, of course, is happening further east. The Yerushalmi, or the Jerusalem Talmud, is happening in the land of Israel. They are very similar works. A lot of their stories are the same. Um, a lot of the characters are the same. We know that they were going back and forth, these rabbis who were having these conversations to and from these different schools and transmitting these ideas. Um, but one interesting piece is that the Yerushalmi uh, seems to have been less edited uh, in some ways than the Bavli. So it's got much more of the flavor and the language of the earlier conversation seems to have less of a thumbprint of the later editors mm-hmm. of the Babylonian Talmud. So sometimes when somebody wants a much more original or view of the original rabbinic perspective back then, they might go to the Yerushalmi, whereas most people studying Talmud generally work out of the Bavli. But there are exceptions, of course. So, if we're wondering when the Talmud was, there are two components of the Talmud. Go ahead, Bert. I always get these backwards. Mishnah was first. Yep. About 200. 220. About 220. And Gemara... About seven, eight hundred, somewhere in there. Probably earlier than that. Um, what are Daniel, a uh, rabbinic intern, what are the between the six and the seven hundred? Between six and seven hundred. By seven hundred. All right. So we know that it was codified, canonized. It was closed by seven hundred. Um, let's start with the Mishnah, though. The Mishnah is the very beginnings of rabbinic commentary on the Torah, asking in, filling in questions, stories, all of that, and the Gemara. And it was codified. It was um, canonized by two twenty by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, and the Gemara was then the continuation of the conversation, um, oftentimes in Aramaic as opposed to the Mishnaic Hebrew of the Mishnah. Um, we get a mix of Hebrew and Aramaic in the Gemara, and that gets wrapped up by between six and 700. Um, 
it's not totally clear what the last level the last editor, who that was, but there is a voice that we call the stum, which seems to be the last word in all of these conversations. And so that voice, we believe, finally left its mark on the discussion by 700 or so, um, certainly. Was there a dispute as to whether it should be written down? So, originally, this is uh, this was a set of conversations, as we were talking about. Um, it's the reason that this is commonly called, this set of works is commonly referred to as the Oral Torah. Um, I don't know that it, there was a dispute about writing it down, but it originally took the form of a conversation before it was recorded or um, written down in this way, and it preserves the orality of it. Um, the two genres that we have most prominent in Talmud are basically law, legal material, and stories. Um, the meanderings, the wanderings, the mystical journeys of the rabbis. We have those things woven in together. Um, this is part of how where we get the feel of the orality of it is that these things aren't cleanly delineated between now we're going to talk about law and now we're going to talk about stories. One of the most outrageous stories in the Talmud is the mystical journey of a rabba bar bar kama. And he encounters giants and um, traders and goes on this sea journey with whales, this wild adventure reminiscent of Sinbad or something. And it begins in a section where they're talking about laws for building a boat. And what are the rules about that? They finish talking about those rules and they say, and here's a guy who went on a boat one time. So you definitely get the, uh, the oral feel of it, the conversational feel of it. Um, it shines through in that way. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So was there a, a hiatus between the two? This question one and the question two. How did they choose who was going to be, who, who they wrote down, who was like legit? Okay, how did they decide who was in and who was out, and was there a big time difference? These things probably happened pretty much on top of one another, the Mishnah and Gemara. The, the Mishnah was sort of closed, but clearly we know it wasn't the end of the conversation because we have then the continuation of it in the Gemara from all of these rabbis. Um, the question of who got to be part of this conversation is a great question. And I will say um, the Talmud was probably a pretty elite thing, that these were elites within the society, um, the political and religious leaders of the Jewish people, and they were having these conversations in their Batei Midrash, their Beit Midrash study houses. Um, there weren't lots and lots of poor people necessarily. There weren't. Uh, there largely weren't women involved in the Talmud. Um, so we get that this is a very elitist male uh, institution. The people who are writing this. Although today we are going to get an exception in that we have a woman who is named and is an, an integral part of the story. So, you know, one of the exceptions to it. But it seems to be these groups of scholars, these learned people, who are also the political sort of elite of the time having these conversations in their study houses. So it's not necessarily that everybody got to go in, although there is also a great story of opening up the Beit Midrash, flinging open the doors and allowing people to come in and join the conversation. So perhaps we'll read that at some point, too. They um, also claim the connection to Sinai. Yes. That, in fact, what this was, and for some people, I guess, Talmud is the word of God, and that they say... God gave Moses the Torah, mm -hmm. dictated the Torah, and then it was passed down and they go through all the generations. So the Talmud as a project is, they understand the rabbinic project to be a continuation of revelation at Sinai. It's what distinguishes rabbinic Judaism from uh, 
say, the Karaites, who only take the word of the Torah and those pieces and don't accept the legal weight of the rabbinic project coming afterward. Um, Daniel, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, well, when you asked about the gap between yeah. 220 and 700, right. right? On a given piece of Talmud, you're talking about a paragraph of the Mishnah mm-hmm. and a page or two pages of Gemara. So it's six books versus 63 books. Mm-hmm. So that's where the 500 years comes in, <laughs> right? It takes quite a while to continuously have these conversations that grow Generate. tenfold in size. Actually, really more because the Mishnah is a small book and a Talmud is a big book. Um, so that's it's not that there was a huge hiatus. It was these were the years while that was being cultivated and created. Um, so it really is a continuous process. Yep. It's not continuous. I heard someone compare it to Facebook. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of, there might be an original comment and then there's a thread that ensues right. underneath. They're, they're threads, so it's not something that you read, you read even the way you read Torah. Mm-hmm. It's disconnected as Torah sometimes is. Mm-hmm. The Talmud is totally yeah. <laughs> disconnected. I mean, there's not a story. Right? Not a so central story. Right. I think that's the beginning of the end. No. We have all sorts of characters and people, and they're discussing law and the rules, and how do you actually make Torah work as a guide to living your life? And then it's the stories about them and this sort of rabbinic project they're taking on after of putting together Jewish life in the wake of the destruction of the temples and Jerusalem and the priesthood and all of those things by Rome. It's really about picking up those pieces and forging this new Jewish identity in a way. There there was no attempt to make it into a continuous story. or I mean, things are grouped. Mm -hmm. So they're grouped thematically. Right. Um, (laughs) And they feel perfectly comfortable deviating from their groups. We're going to read... A from uh, Masechet from a book called Gitin today. A get is a Jewish divorce document. However, this story has nothing to do really with what Gitin themselves or getting a legal divorce because this is where the conversation went. Um, so yes. To, to echo Rowan's words, it starts the conversation and it's published as a conversation. If you're having a conversation, you're having a really good few-hour-long conversation. There is no continuity <laughs> by the end where you're at because you're going where the conversation takes you. Beautiful. That's put. exactly what they did. So that's why it kind of goes at what you might say is out of order or no continuity. There is. It's just you got to follow what they were thinking was followed. Beautifully said. Um, it, we do. I would say that the orality of it is woven throughout it. Um, that that's the one truly consistent thing is that oral um, quality of it. So, any other questions about what this thing is that we're reading? Yeah. Just, just on that last point. Yeah. So, if I've got this right, uh, this conversation, perhaps <coughs> on a given thread, mm-hmm. might have gone on for a couple hundred years. Yes. Four hundred years, but maybe not. That's maybe ten generations, mm-hmm. at least five. And you bring up another good point, uh, which is, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. yeah so, continue. When you start thinking about it, um, I don't know how many people were involved in one generation, but there's got to be 
tens to a hundred. And they they do identify themselves by their lineage, by what school they come from, who their teachers were, and who their teachers were. So they they are very attached to this chain of transmission, as it is what roots them in Revelation at Sinai. Now the other thing about it is that there's a principle in Torah, Ein Mukdam Umeuchar B'Torah. There's no such thing as early or late in Torah, and they are. Yeah. Totally enthusiastic about that. They are content to have arguments happen between rabbis who we don't believe actually historically lived at the same time. Um, but they're not concerned about the temporality of it. They're concerned about the conversation and about what well, comes out of it. Point, it could have been even five generations later. Yeah. Somebody still talking about the same thing. Absolutely. And, and, and modifying the story. Absolutely. People from different countries. Um, these all. So these were all those people in Babylon. So there were exilic communities that were sort of in and around the Mediterranean basin and some points in and around Persia and such that, you know, since the destruction of the first temple, the expulsion by the Babylonians, and then the Persians conquering the Babylonians, letting the Jews return to build the second temple, there's sort of communities that are interspersed throughout all of this. The main centers that go into the Babylonian Talmud, though, are academies that are in what is today Iraq. Um, in fact, the Fallujah, if anybody remembers the battles of Fallujah, is uh, today exists on what was back then um, a city called Pumbadita, which was one of the really crucial integral sites of uh, Talmud. Um, it was one of the big academies. Fallujah is near Ur. Which yeah. is where Abraham was from. There you go. So all throughout that area, we have um, Talmud scholars and Talmud in the discussion and such. So any last questions? Yeah, go ahead. And then I want to get uh, into our story, too. So, so you, Here, if you want to pass this bird. Let's say 500 years yeah. since this was written. And, and we see how society changes now. Of course, society is changing much more quickly now than mm-hmm. then. But over a period of 500 years, ethos surroundings, history does change, and morality changes as a reflection of the society. Do we see that reflected in the Torah, in the the, um, Talmud at all? We do. We absolutely do. We see a shift, for instance, from, I'll give you just one example. Rabbi Akiva supported the uprising of Bar Kokhva. He took Shimon Bar Kosiba, this guy, and renamed him Bar Kokhva, the son of a star. He made it a messianic thing. So certainly the rabbis were part of... um, the militaristic endeavor. We later on see this refiguring of Hanukkah where they very much want to downplay the militaristic qualities of it and emphasize the miracle of light. So even within their conversation, there is a certain trajectory of it. Um, in addition, we know that some of the laws in the Talmud, the laws, some of the laws that even in Halakha, Orthodox Judaism today exist, are different than what were in the Talmud. Some of them have gotten more strict. Some of them have gotten more lenient. Um, so even that all reflects the changes of these communities. Um, So, yes, we do even see some of those changes within. Um, So, today, last time, to recap, we began this arc of stories that was about the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, We looked at Kamtsa and Bar Kamtsa, these two characters, cockroach and son of a cockroach, who basically, through their own internal spat, cause a Roman march on Jerusalem, at least in this rabbinic story. Today... We're going to see a little bit more of this same story as the noose is starting to tighten around Jerusalem and see some of the dynamics of the people who are part of that drama um, through the escape of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. 
So, this, what we'll do to begin is we'll do what we always do. We'll begin with Chavruta study. So I want to inter- encourage you to turn to your neighbor, pick somebody you know, someone you don't know. Um, I encourage you to read this through, read it aloud. The room should be loud and vibrant and buzzing like a rabbinic bait midrash. We're creating that ourselves. So I invite you to read it through. It's going to be confusing and convoluted. That's okay because we're going to all go through it together after this. So have no fear. Um, Rabbi Sher and I will be uh, wandering throughout to help anyone. Yes, exactly. So one, two, three, go. All right, we are going to reconvene as a group. I'm glad all of you in your chavrutot have gotten to get thoroughly twisted up and confused by this fantastic story and all of the twists and turns of it. There is one twist that is not intended in the text that I want to point your attention to, and this will be corrected for the podcast. Um, On the second page, at the top, the third line in, that should not be Rabbi Yochanan, that should be Abba Sikara, who is speaking there. Mm-hmm. How long? No. That should be. Yochanan is speaking. Yes. Yochanan is speaking to Abba Sikara. Oh. How long are you going to continue this and kill the people? Right. So that's the correction I need to make. Which Daniel and I caught the other day, and I fixed, and I must have printed the wrong version. Don't you hate it when that happens? All right. So we're going to start reading through. We're going to do our close reading line by line, um, sentence by sentence. And as questions come up, we'll take them and we'll discuss the whole thing. Who wants to start us off? I will. Go ahead. There were certain virioni among the people of Jerusalem. The rabbi said to them, let us go out and make peace with the Romans. Okay. We'll just take that much. Questions? Okay. I want to add a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I... It, to some degree, it's like it reminds me of the Maccabees because okay. um, I would say we are the pe- we sitting in this room are the people who would want to make peace with the Romans because we didn't feel that our Judaism was threatened by them, mm-hmm. and we live could live both in a secular and a religious society side by side. And keep in mind, the first casualty to the Maccabees was another Jew. Jew. That's right. Um, So there is... This would be more in the Bar Kokhba time period. This would be pre-Bar Kokhba. This would be about 70 years before Bar Kokhba. I'm not saying they're the Maccabees. But Bar Kokhba also wasn't a Maccabee. Bar Kokhba led his revolt in 132 through 135. The Maccabees were um, 300-something, I think, BCE um, in that ballpark, if that sounds right to you number-wise. So So this was really 200 Yes, this is before the redaction of the Mishnah. Uh, This was about the year 70 CE, or right around it. Um, Now, a word about the Biryoni. It comes from a word meaning like prison guards, but they as a group are an interesting one. I was talking to my rabbi, Steve Sager, and he was telling me about how, and he has a doctorate in uh, Midrash, so this is very much his area, that the Biryoni were, they were thugs on one hand and street fighters, but on the other hand, they were also much more tightly connected to the political project and the ideology and the goal of it all. Um, you could make the analogy between them and, say, the fascist Italian black shirts, um, that they were a pretty organized group that was part of what was going on. They were more than just... Um, criminals, but there was also a criminal element to them in what they were doing. So that's just to give you an idea of who the Birioni were. Let's continue. Who wants to take that second sentence? 
Okay, the rabbis said to them, let us go out and make peace with the Romans. But the Beryoni would not allow them. The Beryoni said, let us go out to fight them. The rabbis said, you will not succeed. The Beryoni then rose up and burned the stores of wheat and barley in the city so that a famine ensued. Okay, um, so we have this conflict already between the rabbis and the Beryoni. Um, this clash that the rabbis want to make some kind of a deal, the Beryoni are the militants here. Um, any questions about this? Well, it seems really counterproductive to starve your own people. Uh, but the idea is if your people can't sit comfortably in their city, they have to fight. And that's a tactic that's been used before this and after this. The Russians used that tactic. The Germans used the tactic. The Italians used the tactic. The British used the tactic. The French used the tactic. Every European power has used that tactic at some point in the last 2,000 years. Right. So that first paragraph of it, we are just starting off the tale of Yochan and Benzakai. Welcome. Um, no worries. The... Uh, that is the idea, is that the Birioni wanted to force a confrontation. They, there was a siege going on, if you can imagine that, of Jerusalem, and the, the Romans were wanting to wait them out. The Birioni wanted to actually Accelerate. go out yeah, and start the fight. So they were willing to, it was this very self-destructive, kamikaze-like thing that they wanted to do in order to push the conflict forward. Um, so these are real militants. We should read them. Does somebody want to continue for us? Marta, the daughter of Baitos, was one of the richest women in Jerusalem. She sent her assistant out saying, go and bring me some fine fire. <coughs> By the time he left, it was so bad. He came and told her, there is no fine flour, but there is white flour. She then said to him, go and bring me some. By the time he went, he found the white flour so bad. He came and told her, there is no white flour, but there is dark flour. She said, go and bring me some. By the time he went, it was sold out. He returned and said to her, There is no dark flour, but there is barley flour. She said, Go and bring me some. By the time he went, this was also sold out. She had taken off her shoes, but she said, I will go out and see if I can find anything to eat. She stepped an excrement that stuck to her foot, and she died. Rabbi Yohan ben Zakkai said about her, The soft and delicate among you, who would not dare to set the soul of your foot upon Okay, so we'll just take that much. The story has shifted gears, and again, this is a remarkable piece in that we have a woman who is named, which does not happen very often in the Talmud. Um, she seems to be, as it mentions, one of the richest people in Jerusalem, a woman from one of the most prominent families. And we get this prolonged piece about how she can't even get what to eat. Um, she keeps sending her servant out to find it, and then stepping out into the streets, into the filth and disgustingness, she steps in something and dies. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said about her, uh, he brings this line, this, uh, we have the proof text from Dvarim, from Deuteronomy, that he brings this piece out saying that, yeah, this is um, somebody who is delicate, who is being reduced to something else by these circumstances, stepping out and it actually kills her, the shock of this. But we're going to see that there's another interpretation of what happens to her. Um, the rabbis don't even agree what happened to Marta, this prominent woman of Jerusalem. Any questions just on that chunk? Yeah, I mean, go ahead. She had taken her shoe off, which is why she set steps her barefoot off. Mm-hmm. But why could she have not put her shoes back on? Now, obviously, there's some significance to her being barefoot, some very severe significance. But, I mean, it, it seems that, like, that 
is a very focal point in this story, and mm-hmm. I don't get, I don't know what historical significance of that would be. Mm-hmm. Whether that's a sign of her being reduced to the level of poverty, and that it's this poverty and, and uh, strippingness that causes her to die, mm-hmm. or if there's something more to it than that. Yeah, we are absolutely are invited to look at this in both historical, uh, through historical lenses as well as. Um, literary lenses, like what? How is she working as a literary device? What is she trying to impart to us as a piece of the literary sort of part of the story? Bert, did you want to jump well, in? Maybe she was in a rush. That could be too. So she didn't even take the time to put her shoes on because she was so hungry. So I always. But I don't get yes. how she died. So what the, was the cause of her death? I mean, she stepped in something and she died. So was she shocked? Was she? What it's a great question. What is it that happened between her stepping in this filth and dying? Um, you are right to ask that question. I always ask people, what's your movie version of this? When you imagine this story happening, what are you imagining? Because the Talmud, there's enough in Talmud where they're not spelling out every single detail of the story. So it actually pays to share what your movie version is because it allows other people to look at their own assumptions about what's happening here. Is she dying of shock? Is she dying of being impoverished somehow? Um, These are all great questions, and the places where the Talmud doesn't make it explicit, those are really, those places are invitations for us to do our own droshing and our own um, exploring and sharing of ideas. Yeah, go ahead. Well, this part of what gets me is that there's no sense of time frame for her death. Yes. It could be that she, with the reading, it could be that she stepped in it, picks up her foot, and then just falls over there. Save that thought, because that's going to come up again in the next paragraph, too. Because the other thing is, you know, she could get an infection, and infections in that era were usually around 100% deadly. Yes. Um, save that thought because that's going to come up in the next paragraph as well. Susan, did you want to add or well, Jill? No, but just before that, I, mm-hmm. I mentioned this when we were talking. That, um, it seemed to me she was not very good at managing her. She didn't have a very useful rapport with her assistant because she could have had flour. Mm-hmm. If, but she must have been someone who said, if she said, go get me white flour, and he came back with barley flour, would have screamed at her. Yes. They didn't want to be screamed at, so they both starved to death because of ma- bad management skills. Good it point. Just a, it's an synopsis, but that bothered me. That if, this is temporally correct. All the barley had been burned up and the wheat had been burned up already. So why is, there is none to be had, and why is this guy coming back and saying, you know, it's been sold out? So I was picturing that there were some in storehouses that got burned, but there were these, you know, little corner stores. Okay. This gets back to exactly what's your movie version of this? You're imagining the corner store and you're thinking about um, it all being gone and he just keeps going back asking for the next lowest one, whereas in reality it's all already been burned. Daniel, you want to jump in too? about a different movie version of the the rich and the powerful living up on their high castle and their high hill. Mm -hmm. You imagine like hundreds of stairs to run back up to wherever they are. She, She could be very you know, distant from what's going on. If she's removed from what's going on, then it's this almost this farce of this running back and forth. You can almost see it that way. Mm-hmm. And if you read it that way, it's also commentary on, like we said, we don't know how she died, but if you're the kind of rich and powerful that live up on your high castle, stepping in excrement might shock you to death. Right. She couldn't right? Just, yeah. How appalled you might be from the filth that you would never have ever been presented by. So... It all depends on how you're looking at it, but there's this other, you know, they really stress 
her her riches. Mm-hmm. And so that might really have to be a key element in the reactions that she has going down. So we're going to come back to that piece too. Jill, I saw your hand she, a minute ago too. She might have kept walking. Okay. This doesn't say, it says, I don't know, but the Hebrew Aramaic, is mm-hmm. it said it's stuck to her foot. Mm-hmm. So she could have stepped in it and then just kept on walking and realized that she had become this walking excrement. This defiled in that yeah, way, yeah. When I first read this, I thought, like, she stepped in it and that was it. So it doesn't say that she took off her shoes to go out, but her shoes were already off. Right. So my movie version is she gets frustrated, she runs out in the street and gets hit by a car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah, go ahead, Abe. So my, my question is actually not exactly about the text, but about the state of Jerusalem as a city in this time period. Because when I was there, there's the walled-in portion of the city, which is not very large. Right. And then there's all of the hills around it that most of the people of Jerusalem live on. Mm-hmm. So in that, in the time frame of, of when this was taking place, um, how much, how many, like, because the, the wealthy people don't live in the city anymore. They live on the hills around the city. That's where a lot of... So, but in that, in, in this time period, would the wealthy have been living physically inside the walled city? So, one thing that's important to hold is that the contemporary walls of Jerusalem were not the wall of the walled city of Old Jerusalem, were not the walls that were back then. Okay. Those were um, by, I believe it was the Ottomans that constructed the. The very yeah. last piece. Yeah, exactly. So those aren't even the same ones. So and. It's important to keep in mind we're looking at a siege right now, that the Romans are laying siege to Jerusalem. So this would not have been people hanging out out in suburbs and such. They would have been behind the walls. And we see the sort of point of tension uh, as we get to the end of the story of those who are manning the walls from the Jewish side of it. Yeah, so you would have ended up with more people in the city already than it could traditionally support. It would have been chaotic and bursting at the seams and they would now be facing starvation after these zealots burned uh, all of their food supply. So we're looking at really dire straits for the city of Jerusalem. Who wants to continue? Others said that she ate a fig left by Rabbi Tzadok and became sick and died. This is because Rabbi Tzadok observed feasts of fasts for 40 years in order that Jerusalem might not be destroyed. And he became so thin that when he ate anything, the food could be seen as it passed through his body. When he would eat after a fast, they used to bring him a fig, and he used to suck the juice and throw the rest away. It was one of these figs that Marta ate. When Marta was about to die, she brought out all her gold and silver and threw it in the street, saying... What is the good of this to me? According to the verse, they shall throw their silver into the streets. Do you want to read that Ezekiel line that she's quoting? She's quoting Ezekiel 7.19. They shall throw their silver into the streets, and their gold shall be unclean. Neither their silver nor their gold will save them in the day of the Lord's wrath to satisfy or fill them, because they made them stumble into guilt. So we're looking at gold and silver here. The Ezekiel line is directly lining up gold and silver with food and being able to eat. These words about satiate, to satisfy them or fill them, um, they're talking about that the riches are not able to do that. Now we also return to Abe's point about uh, what's the timing about when she died versus this stuff because it seems clear that she was aware she was going to die, but she lives long enough to take all of her riches and cast them into the street. 
um, saying even this stuff isn't going to save me. So I think it brings that question up. It, it, it begs that question. Why are they sitting around making stories about how this woman died? So one, my reading that I would suggest of this is that in some ways they are viewing this woman as sort of a microcosm of the life of Jerusalem, that she represents in some ways Jerusalem, this city that was rich, that was the crown jewel of the ancient Israelites, uh, the center of these temples, and they're on the edge of its death, as it were. So it's not about this woman. That's why Do I think... Do you know who Baitos was, her father? Um, we may. I can go look and see if there's anything about that for next time. But I think in some ways she's meant to represent more than herself, more than her cast. Um, I think in some ways she is representative of something much greater within this. Uh, when, when Rabbi Nick and I read this a few days ago to, to look at it for, for tonight, the one thing that kept spinning my head is this idea, imagine a voice change. So this first paragraph was read, and then it's Marta, the, the daughter of Baitos, and suddenly it's clear that you're telling a story mm-hmm. rather than talking in fact. It kind of shows you that maybe they're illustrating this idea of it being Jerusalem. And if you read, and it's hard to see on paper, but if you read the paragraphs like that, that there would be some type of shift in tone, or in a TV show where like it all of a sudden fades off into like the clouds, like then you can see a little bit more of this being an explanation of something else they're looking at. She becomes, uh, beautifully said, I think she becomes a way into experience what is happening in this moment in Jerusalem. She is imparting to us um, what it meant to have come from such prominence and such wealth and be truly degraded by what is happening and what is about to happen and even have some kind of awareness of what is just around the corner in this in this situation. Other questions about the... Marta section. Well, seems to, <coughs> oh, it seems the mood of these two descriptions are totally different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, the first one being not, it doesn't seem to have morality at all, and the second one, she ends this whole thing of what good is my gold. Mm-hmm. I'm dying. I think that's true, that that piece shifts. We also... It's worth keeping in mind that the text we're, written, we're reading was written by and authored by the rabbis. The rabbis are generally going to be the good guys in their own story. Um, so just as a piece of their... Exactly. The different zealots who these people are. Um, I'll put, yeah, it wasn't written by them. Um, yeah, go ahead. So one thing that I thought was very interesting about these two stories is mm-hmm. that her method or the sort of the cause of her death is... Mm-hmm radically different. In mm-hmm. the first one, she dies when she's forced to leave sort of her bubble of wealth and set foot in the, the excrement of the actual city around her. Mm-hmm. And in the second one, she's eating this this waste product of this very, it seems, holy man. Yes. This, this man, you know, drains the, the juice, which is sort of the life, the blood of this, of this fig that leaves the body, and then mm-hmm. she eats the body of the fig, which... I know which you know has had its its I don't know its essence or its life desiccated, yeah. And it's now you know she's now feeding on this corpse, and that's what kills her. And it could be the same thing with Jerusalem, where Jerusalem, the life and vibrance of the city, is being drained by the war with the Romans, by the zealots, by the burning of the stores, and then mm-hmm. the wealthier seem to be sort of feeding on the corpse of the city, and 
this, you know, this, this abuse of their wealth and their power causes them to die. That's the way I see it. It's like she's setting the bar very low for herself. Yeah. Um, you know, first mm -hmm. she tells her servant, go do this, go do that, go do that. He didn't do it. I'm going to go do it myself. Well, Bam. she's done. And then this, this very moral person, if you want fasting moral, um, sucks all the, the life, all the good stuff out. And she's like going to satisfy herself with the dreck, the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. And so she set the bar very low for herself. <coughs> and she seems, and I would riff on that even further, that up until then she seems to have been content to have all of her gold and silver. Um, the gold and silver in this case couldn't buy that's right. the food, and it couldn't buy life. And you would that's assume right. in both cases she was starving. Yes. She was starving. Mm -hmm. And I mean... I, I'm imagining that you know this wasn't a choice to have that fig. Right. It wasn't like, oh, gee, that's great, I'll eat that fig. It was like that was probably the only thing that she could find to eat. Yeah. Ostensibly. Mm -hmm. A lot of it, sort of, uh, this paragraph reminds me a lot of the story of King Midas, mm. where like you know what good is wealth if you can't fulfill your own basic, most basic human needs. Right. Um, I think that's. 100% what they're saying with that line from Ezekiel, that all the gold and the stores of Jerusalem and all of the ornate, beautiful things of the great temples that stood, um, after the Birioni destroyed the food stores and they're under siege, you know, that all, it becomes... But they're not separate here from the Romans. It's not the Romans that did it to them. It's the Birioni that made her starve. The zealots, it's her own people. So they're all connected, I would could, say. This could have been written. The Romans came and they destroyed all the food to try and, you know, de destroy the people. But it's the Jews that did it. And they could have just gone out for food if the Romans weren't keeping them penned in under siege. So the Romans are... What? Call dominoes. Call dominoes. Fred, not Bert. Um, no, so the two are really linked in that way. I would say that it's almost impossible to absolve either the Birioni or the Romans of their role in starving out the city in this way. Well, there was... But there's more blame to go around than just those two. Yeah. Uh, there's plenty... It, it seems to me like they're blaming Marta, the elitist rich person, for not even having enough <coughs> skin on her feet because she, you know, probably never walked barefoot in her life mm -hmm. to go out in the street okay. and end up dying. So that's so a she had become mm -hmm. through this life that she previously lived in luxury. Uh, in this story, at least in my mind, she had become partially responsible for her own death. Great. So it's a great question to ask. To what degree are the rabbis judging her for who she was or what she was in all of this? It's a really good question. Or to what extent are they seeing her as this victim? Go ahead. So you said earlier that this story would have taken place around like 70. Yeah. So when I was... Uh, 69 was the siege of Jerusalem. Yeah. So when I was at Masada, we were reading a bunch of stuff about like some of the different groups that were yes. active in Jerusalem and how they ranged from you know the sort of in modern terms leftist let's make peace to the priests who were very much like we need to not let the the Romans in to these militant groups that were absolutely fanatical and insane and there were like dozens of, of sects of mm -hmm. Jews in Jerusalem That's right. who were 
who sort of, in the way that a lot of ultra-Orthodox today see <laughs> liberal Jews, is almost like if you weren't willing to fight and die, you were not a Hebrew. You were not really a Jew. So let's save that piece because we're going to go there, but let's save that for the next part of the conversation because that's absolutely where this goes. Um, that very much is the conversation that we're going to have with Abba Sikara in the next. Yeah. I just had a tiny feminist aside when I read it too. Yeah. Um, Marta was educated in, in, in Torah and Tanakh because as she's dying, she pulls out this great book. I mean, she knew her stuff, which means she was also an educated woman. Yeah. No, what's funny is that she probably wasn't educated, but she did what the rabbis do. The convention of the rabbis is when they want to make a point in Talmud, they link to some so, source like that. So they're giving her rabbinic it, behavior. Yes, but it, yeah. So if you take it literally, she mm-hmm. knew enough to pull out the book from the seat. That's right. Did you want to add something? If you're giving context, the Torah is read aloud on market days, mm-hmm. right? And so she was a woman of wealth. Potentially, at some point in her life, she was able to go and hear public readings. Is how the rabbis would spin it. But what Rabbi Nick is saying, which is the like much stronger point, is this shows you the author, right? This that is what the rabbis did. Right? This yeah, this shows you who's writing this. This is the rabbis because that's how they prove everything is cited no. back to the text. But they are saying yeah, that she's no, right. But they, but they still say that Marta brought out her whole. The rabbis chose to say that when Marta was about that. She brought out the gold and silver and here saying, rather than having them say, when Marta died, it was said about her. That's right. So they, they do give her the voice. They have her come around at the end of her life to an understanding of what this is, and she is the one who makes the point that the rabbis want to make to us, the reader. Um, so... Whether they're sort of looking down on her as being this elite thing that's beneath them and their project of study, or whether they're looking up to her as the victim, as representing (laughs) Jerusalem in some ways, um, is a good question. And there are a lot of different ways to slice that piece and slice how what the rabbinic relationship to her and to what was going on at the time uh, was exactly. I want to, yeah, go ahead. Um, Habitos. Ben-Sonin was a, a respected wealthy resident of Lydda, um, whose home was a meeting place for, for scholars. Um, it, it is related that the, that the rabbis headed by Rambam Kamleil reclined in the house of, of Beethoven, blah, 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 and, and, and this, and this so the the house he was wealthy, but he was also very. It was a place for he was learning con- and study. He was connected to the rabbinic enterprise. Rabban Gamliel was one of the heads of the community. He was one of the community leaders, and so this guy was first of all supportive of the rabbinic project, connected to the leadership of it, and clearly was inviting yeah Rabban Gamliel in. Um, so it makes sense that her, his daughter might have known some Torah. Right, so maybe. Is that, I, I think we're looking at this wrong. That, that, that we're, we're, we're seeing her as as elitist and wealthy, whereas she was wealthy, but that means that she was um, a part of the inner circle of learning. The extent to which women are ever part of the inner circle 
of learning in the Talmud is pretty limited. There is one exception to that, but it's probably not this woman. There's a woman named Bruria who uh, actually beats the rabbis at her, their own game from time to time. Um, she's a great one to see. But um, beyond her, she's sort of the exception that makes the rule. So she was probably in and around it, and she probably would have been sympathetic to the rabbinic cause, and she may have known enough to quote Ezekiel in that piece. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, there's something about the, the being sympathetic, uh, her being sympathetic to the rabbis, but also um, maybe it's different in the Hebrew, but at least in this translation, mm-hmm. she doesn't seem to be being blamed for being wealthy or blamed for being disconnected from the people, which is often the case in stories like this. Mm-hmm. Normally in a story like this, there's some denouncement of the extreme wealth of the individual and of the individual. In this... Uh, she doesn't seem to do anything particularly wrong, and she's not being blamed for being wealthy, and she's not dying because, oh, she's so rich she has to die to prove this point. She's dying because the city is dying. I don't know, and the reason I'm not sure is because of that particular verse that she selected. The verse she selected says, she doesn't say that part of it about blaming the wealthy, but the verse continues on, that whole verse, to say that... um, you know, you can't rely on this gold and silver to satisfy you because the gold and silver made the people fall, stumble into guilt. Um, this is a text, Ezekiel, that's looking at, this is exilic. This is talking about the fall of the first temple. And the people would have been, and these prophets would have been challenging the people at what kind of sin you committed to have God destroy the temple in this way. Um, this destruction of the temple is not seen as a, just sort of a neutral act of something that comes from without to destroy it. It's seen as the people and their actions and the way that they connect to God are what is fueling a lot of this. Um, so the way in which the rabbis blame the people at times for some of it is difficult too. Um, but she doesn't finish the verse. She only says that the gold and silver aren't enough to keep you fed. So it's it's... I'll put it like this. The rabbis certainly would have known how that verse ends. Yeah. They would have known where that's going and the implication of, but they didn't finish it. So it's an interesting piece to hold there to wonder. Um, to what extent were they blaming the wealth or the corruption, and to what extent were they did they view that as innocence? I mean, were, the, were the rabbis reliant on donations, basically, to conduct their studies, or did they also make money as, like, scribes? Because if they were... You know, if their if their goal in life, their purpose in life was purely just study of mm-hmm. Torah, of Tanakh, and creation of the the Talmud, then they would have been reliant on wealthy patrons to survive, or were they? fed sort of by the communities that they service. So the priesthood was very much fed by the communities that it was serving and serviced in that way. And their surrounding their donations and the animals and the resources that they brought to the temples and such. Um, we're looking at a moment of real transition within that society. So I, I'm not sure I can say a whole, whole lot about the economics of the very beginnings of rabbinic Judaism. I don't know if anything's been published. Uh, Daniel Scherer, a rabbinical student, that he would have seen more recently than I would have. But um, I'm not, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have a whole lot to tell you about the economics of rabbinic Judaism. Other than that, they weren't the priesthood. Um, they were very clear that they weren't the priesthood, so they would not have been necessarily siphoning. I would, I would, 
I would suggest that they probably weren't siphoning money off in the way that the priesthood was. So they probably weren't supported by the same economic structure because of how adamant they were that they were not part of the priestly enterprise, that theirs was a different project. So they may have been much more independent in terms of their economics. And Did you want to say very clear about that in general? Yeah. Because they don't want to profit off of Torah. So, which is a whole other conversation that Yantel's been into for this class. But yeah. the idea of, in general, the rabbis at this time are very clear that they have day jobs because oh, you're yeah. not to profit from Torah. Because as you said, there were a lot of different groups back then, as you point out correctly, and some of the corruption with the priesthood and some of the other leadership was causing the rabbis to rebel against it or resist it. The clinics worker, the winemaker that you'll hear these names, those are actually the the job the rabbi did during the day to make the money to then be able to passionately study Torah. That's right. Also in Pirkei Avot, there's Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of sayings that have to do with it can't be all Torah or all work, but you need to do both. So there was very much, the, at least at that point, a non-ascetic strain. And we have the tension with that. And our friend Shimon Bar Yochai, if we remember him, who retreats into the cave and is so disgusted by Jews who are making a living that he sets things on fire. So there is a tension between the sort of lived reality and what we need to do and that pious, ascetic, I might even say Haredi <laughs> impulse. We're going to move on to part two here. Who wants to read? Abba Sakara was the head of the, uh, was the, head of the Baryoni in Jerusalem, as well as the son of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's sister. Yochanan ben Zakkai was his uncle. Okay, now a word about Abba Sikara. That word means, it literally means the father of the Sikari. The Sicarii is another group that was going on at this time. We said that the Birioni are closer to like Italian black shirts. They were thuggish, um, and they were probably on the edge of crime, but they were part of sort of pushing an ideological bent. The Sicarii are very different from that. Now, what we don't know is if some of the Sicarii were also Birioni or vice versa, but the Sicarii were um, assassins. These, we should read these as being similar to the Islamic Hashashin, or Japanese ninjas. These were secretive assassins, named after their dagger, the Sike, that they would conceal, um, because this was what they would plunge in people's backs when they could sneak up and do this. Um, this was a very violent group, in contrast to the Birioni, who were more thuggish than assassin-like. Um, so there's even some distinction between some of these. We also hear the word, um, even the word kanaim used to describe some of the militant fighters in and around this time. Kanaim literally means zealots. Um, now what's interesting is that that word also means the one, it means jealous in Hebrew. So when we hear God saying in the Old Testament, I am a jealous God, you could also translate that as I am a zealous God. So we have lots of different groups that seem to be Militants at this time, um, and it's not clear, totally clear historically, what the connection is. Even though we get very different actions from them at different times, so we've shifted to Abba Sikara, who does seem to have some kind of an authority role here with the Sikari. Um, not clear what his relationship with the Birioni is. So, somebody, you want to continue for us? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai sent a message to Abba Sikara, saying, "Come see me in secret." When he came. He said to Abba Sikara, how long are you going to continue this and kill all the people through starvation? Abba Sikara replied, what can I do? If I say something to them, they will kill me. 
Rabbi Yochanan said, help me plan a way to escape. Maybe there will be some slight salvation. Okay. Who's the they? Good question. That's why I didn't. I didn't. There are lots of possibilities for that, but I wanted to leave that one vague and ambiguous because the Talmud does. Um, yeah, go ahead. My initial thought was that Abba Sakara had uh, was potentially maybe like a, a founder of this of the of the Sakara. I mean, that's why it's called the Father, and that at some point had completely lost control of the group, and that the group now operated in such a way that were he to try to bring them in that they would, instead of seeing him as their leader, see, simply see him as another roadblock and off him so they could continue whatever program they were... Great reading. Making. Absolutely a possible so reading. Like they, then, is the very young... Yeah, the problem is which one? Because the very young are this, this, this group of thugs, these rioters, right. and... You know, when you lose control of the populace that you're using to try to strike fear into the city, then the, could be these these thugs that would tear him down and kill him, or it could be his his own people. His own people. Could he have been saying that the Sakari were outnumbered by the Biryoni, and that if he were to sneak this rabbi off, the Biryoni, who had been clashing with the rabbis in our very first paragraph, would kill him or come for his group? Because we do know there were conflict between these different groups. Or maybe they're the same group. Maybe he's saying that about his own followers, as you said, and he has become disillusioned about it. Go ahead. We have to be really careful, though, because in using Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's mm-hmm. story, the rabbis are saying something about the value and the character of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who's really, really highly regarded. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai specifically asks Abba Sikara, why are you starving the people? But on the page before, we read... The Biryani are starving the people. So then we have to say, is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai wrong and it's the Sakari? Are the Sakari the Biryani? Is Abba Sakara in charge of both? Like all these things get into complication because Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai asking Abba Sakara puts the like the responsibility at some point is on Abba Sakara. Mm-hmm. Now we have to figure out who operates under his leadership because we now have two different named groups. But they're not the same group, or maybe they are the same group, or maybe they just act different roles within the same group, and that's the part that gets convoluted. It's true. Um, And we also have the secrecy of this. We know that it seems that Yochanan ben Zakkai can't be seen publicly speaking to... or rather, the opposite. Abba Sikara can't publicly be seen speaking to Yohanan ben Zakkai, but there's a family connection that allows him to make this sort of back-channel overture. Um, so it's a tricky thing here. And it's also necessary, no matter how long he's thought of, for the rabbi to, to sneak out of the city if he wants to live. Oh, interesting. Say more. Yeah. Well, you know, he's, a, he's asking his nephew to sneak him out of the city somehow. Mm-hmm. And he goes through this secret meeting, and he's like, I have got to get out of here because I'm not, not going to survive if I don't. He doesn't say that he's not going to survive. He says that maybe there will be some slight salvation. It's an interesting question. What's the nature of this salvation? Let's, let's, let's pocket that. I want to save that for once we've gotten to the end of this. Um, and then we're going to discuss that. So who wants to continue for us? Abba Sakara said to him, uh, pretend to be sick and let everyone come to ask about your health. Bring something evil smelling and put it by you so they'll say you're dead. Then let your students come in and bring you to burial, but no one else, so they don't realize you're light, since they know that a living being is lighter than a corpse. 
Um, our rabbinic intern made the great point that the light in the Hebrew, and we went and looked at this, could refer to weight or color. Um, it, the Hebrew is indistinct about it. Um, but it, like, it's this word for ease, essentially. So it's an interesting piece that we looked at when we were reading this together. Go ahead. Well, I was thinking, because in, in a lot of tradition, uh, it's the other way, is that corpses weigh less than yep. the people yeah. because like, the soul escaped. But if it is about tone, then it makes sense because the skin would darken as the corpse starts to degenerate and uh, you know, water starts to come out of the skin. Now, so that, that mm-hmm. was something that was like, unless there was some different aspect of it in Judaism than in other similar cultures of the time period where corpses were seen to be, to have lost something and mm-hmm. to be physically lighter. Yeah. You also have the concept of dead weight, right? I mean, yeah. this isn't—that's not entirely certain because if someone's being picked up and they have the the ability to pull themselves up, you have less weight flopping on you yeah. than dead weight. So there's a reason that, that phrase exists, which is also this idea. So it might have also been if they pick up, they pick him up, and he's tensed, there won't be the same distributed weight. It'll be more concentrated. But, but, but he's in a coffin. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're not going to know the difference right. in his weight. Right. <laughs> Which is why I thought it might be color. Yeah, yeah. I understand. No, that, they're not going to know the difference in weight. And it, you know, I mean, the coffin ostensibly would weigh the same as him yeah. or more. So I let's think the thing or here. Or the it's thing, purely allegorical. Could be too. And, yeah. and the light just refers to the light. <laughs> let's read that next paragraph. Somebody want to read for us? He did so, and Rabbi and Rabbi Eliezer came to one side, and Rabbi Yeshua from the other. Do, where do we remember these guys from? Were they, the oven of they were the oven of Achnai. Rabbi Eliezer is the one who yeah, is performing all the magic tricks, and Rabbi Yoshua is the one who fights him. The two of them are both students of Yohanan ben Zakkai. Right. So they're part of his school, even though we see their clash then later on. Go ahead, continue. A question. This yeah. is, uh, Rabbi Eliezer came to one side, and Rabbi Yoshua from the other? Is that... Um, you could say to the other. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when they reached the gate to the city, some of the zealot guard wanted to pierce the coffin. I guess, what? To make, make sure, sure he's sure dead. Okay. Abba Sikara said to them, should the Romans say they have pierced their master? The guards wanted to give it a push. But Abba Sikara said to them, should they say that they pushed their master? They opened the town gate for Rabbi Yohanan, and he escaped. Go ahead. So, because my, I'm just, <coughs> would this have been after the execution, the historical execution of Jesus? Because the piercing of the master, yes. mm-hmm. well, that, would have, that would have been in, what, like the 50s uh, CE? Something, something like that. So that seemed to me to be a very, very like specific reference to the execution of, of Jesus because great reading one of the big things was piercing the side of the, of the master of the master because yeah. at that at that at this time period there was not the the hundred percent break between the Jews who followed there had not hadn't been the break between the Jews who followed Jesus and they hadn't become Christians yet they were just a sect of Jews at that point they were yeah. Jews for Jesus they were yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were but they're wondering what will the Romans say. What do they care what the Romans say? These are yeah. zealots. Well, 
I mean, my thought on that about what the Romans say is there are times in the Torah where, you know, God is sort of talked down from smiting the Israelites because the Egyptians will think you weren't a good enough God. Yeah. So there's this definite, like, pride of, like, we can't be, we can't let the enemies talk down about us. I hear that, and I thought of that too in Torah. But nevertheless, I mean, these are the zealot guards. I mean, these are the thuggiest of the thugs. These are the fascist black shirts. And somehow they managed to get talked out of piercing the coffin or making sure that he's dead by, well, you know, the Romans can't see what we do, you know, toward the master here. Yeah. that even if the... You know the the black shirts the were in office zealots were in opposition to what the rabbis were doing. They still had enough respect for the individual rabbis, if not for the rabbinic movement. Yes. That that in that that this man's because the body, the corpse is fairly sacred in Judaism. There's a lot yep. of things you don't do. Kavod hamish. Clean yourself. You know all these special rights. So they were afraid enough to you know dishonor him. Dishonor this man's corpse that they weren't willing, you know. But had he been alive, but he was alive. alive, they would have killed him. Anyway. They would have been willing to kill him, but they weren't willing to desecrate his corpse. Mm-hmm. But he was alive. He was, but they didn't know. I'm saying if they knew he was alive, they may no. have, they would have probably killed him on the spot. But his corpse is somehow more sacred as what it represents than the actual person was. Mm-hmm. You have to remember the context that the reader is supposed to know. Paint the picture again. They're at the gate of Jerusalem. On one side, they're dealing with the zealots. But on the other side of the gate is the sieging Roman army. So it's not like, what will the Romans ever think? It's what will the Romans think in 15 seconds? (laughs) So not five minutes, but the idea is that even if the zealots are not pro-rabbi, they're both inside the city. So at some point, even if there's all this internal conflict, when you're all the way at the gate, now it's you against them. So suddenly it does work to play against this idea of the Romans because you're at the gate. You're you're out of the internal conflict and back to the external conflict. So by having the rabbis talk about the Romans, they're saying, you want to give them another reason to just charge the gate right now? Look like a barbarian, right? right? Do this thing that would desecrate the, the sanctity of this dead body and look like a barbarian and see how the Romans react. And there's also going to be calculation in there. Mm-hmm. Now, did the zealots know that he was alive? No. No. I, uh, I have no idea. Sorry, I'm assuming no. It's a good question. If they have to be talked out of piercing this thing, it, it seems to imply that they think he was dead, that they wanted to pierce it and make sure he was dead. Seems to be the implication. Um, but you could make that argument that... Well, it's a good question. Um, yeah. So in the last few minutes... We got about 10, 15 minutes. We have a few different Jewish responses to Rome. One of them is the response of Masada. It's the response of the Sicari. It's the response of the Birioni. Um, there's a certain purity that they seek to uplift through their violence and through their action. Um, interestingly enough, we don't have the story of Masada from the Talmud. That story is never told. That story of all of those Jewish defenders that hole up on the top of the mountain and then the Roman army comes and besieges it and right before the Roman army can build their mountain up the side of their stairs up the side of the wall, the mountain, to 
to break in and capture all the Jews, they all commit suicide. They kill everyone up there. Um, Which sounds against Jewish law. So then there's an interesting question of martyrdom, or Kiddush Hashem is what they call the sanctification of the name, is how certain kinds of martyrdom get justified in Jewish tradition. That's one response over here. The other response is that of Yochanan ben Zakkai. He has to find some kind of middle way. He survives. Um, he is one of the ones, I'll tell you this, he establishes the academy at Yavne, which replaced the school of Jerusalem when it's destroyed. Um, he is one of the key figures in ensuring the survival of the rabbinic project. He almost single-handedly. Um, but he has to do so negotiating both with the black shirts on the one hand and the Roman government on the other. Next session, when we get to the thrilling conclusion of this three-part series, we're going to look at his negotiating with the Romans and what happens when he gets out of the gates and we see that he encounters the Romans. Now, there's one other, I'll get to you in just a second, there's one other impulse that we see. We don't have the Masada story from the Talmud. We have the Masada story from uh, Josephus, that's right, who was, before he was Josephus, um, uh, Yosef ben Marityahu, who was a Galilean military commander for the Jews, and he surrendered his military campaign to the, his uh, military command to the Romans, and then followed the Roman army around making history, or writing history down. Um, in that sense. So the only way we have that fantastic Masada story was through our Benedict Arnold, through our traitor. Um, that was another Jewish response at the time to the juggernaut that was Rome. Do you like, Jose- do you like uh, Yosef ben Marityahu become Flavius Josephus? Um, go ahead. So we have... So we have all of these different responses to the Roman juggernaut. Go ahead. So my thought was that um, since uh, uh, I was like, Rabbi Zakai, he was so important to the continued work of the rabbinic movement mm-hmm. and I assume you know, the creation of the Talmud, mm-hmm. then we could say that, that that small salvation, that some small salvation is the permanent preservation a continuation of the Jewish people of Torah, of Tanakh. Maybe not so small. <laughs> Maybe his small salvation is that by you know allowing his escape, that the Jewish people can survive for the next two thousand years that we've managed to. To pull off. Yeah, I've that is that maybe there'll be some salvation because he was going to go out and negotiate with the Romans. I don't think so. There was no negotiation with the Romans. I mean, the, the Romans were not. We're going to see. Stay tuned for part three. <laughs> you know, sort of like the, the Romans were an implacable force at that time. And when they set their minds to destroy something, which they had done in campaigns through North Africa and, and the Spanish Peninsula, they, they, when they set their minds to the complete and total annihilation <laughs> of resistance, it was complete, and they didn't. You know, they they never did go in and execute everybody. They would just destroy, you know, the the major population centers and any sort of government. And they were ruthless. They were, and they were effective, and they were also not monolithic. One thing we're going to see next time is that we are on the edge of a Roman civil war. 
in the broader world. And the Roman characters who were the generals and later the emperors are going to come into play in their contact and their interaction with Yohanan ben Zakkai about what is going to happen here. Is, is it this tells the general that he's going to be the next emperor and then... We're going to get to all of this. Uh, Stay this, tuned. If, if you assume, who knows if this actually happened or not, but if you assume that it was written later, mm-hmm. it could be this was written to answer the question, how did he, how did he survive? How, How did he survive and then go to Yavna? It's, it's like the legend of where did he come from that was constructed later mm-hmm. to give him... Could be. It does seem to be answering the question how, given that the noose is tightening, we're about to see the destruction of Jerusalem, how did this small group of Jews manage to keep the rabbinic project mm-hmm. alive? Um, that it does seem to be the story we have here. Did we his also, students leave with him? That's Obviously a good question. They carried him, and they got outside the gate. And since and they're they in the oven of, going? and since they're in the oven of Achnai, <laughs> clearly they survived this episode. So uh, we have five students of his: um, Eliezer ben Herkanos, Yoshua ben Hanania, Yosid Hakohen, Shimon ben Netanel, and Elazar ben Arach. We saw Elazar ben Arach actually as well. So we know that his students managed to survive. Unless, of course, he took on any of those students after the destruction of this. But we do know that at least um, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua survived. So um, this might be kind of like the moral story about, of how they didn't all get killed. Yeah. Abba Sikara is another fascinating one, too, because if we think about these three Jewish responses to Rome, the rabbinic one trying to uh, work it down the middle, the extreme militant one, and then the extreme sort of assimilationist treasonous one, Abba Sikara both uh, seems to sympathize with, uh, with Yohanan ben Zakkai, and he perhaps even realized this is the futility of his own position. Um, reading him as a character who may have changed or may have had some kind of an evolution, who may have been idealistic and set out to start this group, the Sicarii, these ninjas, these assassins, um, and then realized that Rome was going to steamroll it right over it, that there was no defeating this thing in battle. Um, he may have changed his tune, or he may have simply had a certain kind of affinity for the rabbinic project, even where he wanted to pursue a different course himself. Um, We hold a lot of these all in tension at this time. They say that Judaism was, the rabbis say that what was the reason for the destruction of the temple? Does anyone know this one? Justified hatred of fellow Jews? Yeah, they they do it in two words, sinat chinam, free hatred. Mm -hmm. They say we hated ourselves, and that was what ultimately caused the destruction of the temple. They tell the story at greater length and embellishment and all of that here, but they do, elsewhere when they're talking about it, sum it up in two words. This is the only real place, though, that they talk about the actual story of the destruction. But the reason was sinat chinam. And here we do see sort of writ large these different groups of Jews who had very different ideas about what to do about this cataclysm that was about to rock their very foundation. I mean, there's a reason that we have the book of revelations from this time, and we have 
um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran sect that was part of this same moment as well, they have a story in addition to some of our prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they have a whole scroll that's about the war of the sons of light and the sons of darkness. Everybody in this moment was seeing the end of the world as they knew it. And so what we're sitting with here are the Jews holding this through a lot of different responses. Go ahead. So part of why I bring this text to the forefront is to show, I'll put it like this, the interval between um, the Holocaust and now about the interval between the destruction of the temple and the redaction of the Mishnah. Um, we're in this moment where we have just experienced the destruction of Jewish life as we knew it in Europe. And we're in this moment where we are figuring out what it looks like going forward, having the state of Israel, as well as this Jewish life in North America that's unlike any other in terms of its vibrancy. So we are in this moment where historically, and this, what we're looking at is about to happen to these Jews was more thorough than what happened in the Shoah. Um, the rabbis are in the process of trying to figure out and trying to remake Jewish life after a huge destruction. And they're part of a certain generativity around it and a creativity of needing to figure out what Judaism is going to be going forward. We're not in a moment that's n unlike this in some ways. In some ways, we are in this moment. We're not right there at the moment of the cataclysm or the year right beforehand, but we are where the rabbis were who were writing this and who were telling this story and talking about it, who were part of picking up the pieces, as it were, and figuring out how to remake Judaism following this cataclysm, following great destruction. Um, that all of us are sitting where the rabbis were in their Batei Midrash telling these stories and figuring out how uh, what the project was going to be going forward. In that way, I want to suggest that the rabbinic project is an invitation to all of you to keep this conversation going and to continue in Jewish life and learning and what are our cultural things? What is our synagogue going to look like? What is our religious life going to look like? I'm not going to be the author of this, not by myself, certainly, that all of us are, us are part of this project together of building a Jewish future in this sense. So... Uh, we are very much in the place of the rabbinic project, and I want to invite you to take that as a kavanah going forward, that we're here to do some building together in the wake and in the face of and in spite of some real darkness. So next time we will have the stunning, thrilling conclusion, part three, about how it was that the rabbis survived this destruction. Thank you all for coming so much. It's been a pleasure.